Rihanna had a whole uh, a whole era of time where she was just showing up late for shows. She was just going on late just because she felt like it, you know. And I just remember during that time just being like, you know what, I wish. I know the fans are still there, but, you know, it's just a courtesy thing, you know. So uh, even I've learned from them doing the wrong thing. Justin, pretty pretty punctual guy. Yeah, always on time. Yep. Yeah. How did uh, how did that part of your career come about? Oh, it's a very interesting story. So I was in Orlando, living in Orlando at the time, and uh, I was doing a rehearsal with a local band at the Epcot Center. And the band next door was the band for NSYNC. So me just being me, I went next door, you know, knock on the door. Hey, guys, what's up? I'm Charles, blah, blah, blah. And we talk and I got to know the musical director. His name is Kevin Antunes really well. And um, that's how it all started. Like I I kept up with Kevin throughout the years. uh, And it just came to be that one day he was like, hey, why don't you come by the house and just hang out? And um, he asked me, did I want to go on tour with Justin Timberlake? And, you know, a week and a half later, I was on Jay Leno. You were on board as the musical director at that point, or you kind of worked your way up? No, no, I worked my way up, definitely. I wasn't, um, I didn't have my first musical director post until, um, well, actually it was with Sierra. It was maybe a year and a half later. Um, but then with, with other artists, it didn't happen until much later on. But I was just there as a, a pianist and keyboardist. Since we, we said something negative about Rihanna earlier, that another uh, story that you were, well, no, another story that you, you relate, I think, in that conversation is that she actually called you on the phone, which is nice. That's like another thing yeah. that you don't really expect to get from people of that level. They've got assistants and managers and all these people. Yeah. The cool thing was that at the time I was working for Timbaland and we were in the studio working on the Good Girl Gone Bad album. And, uh, me and another producer and she and her best friend, Melissa, we just all hung out for days and days at a time making music. So we we kind of got a relationship through our time in the studio. And um, at that point, I hadn't toured with her yet, but um, we were just friends. And she called and was like, hey, you want to go on tour? And I was like, yeah, of course. Are you kidding me? So uh, it was just a privilege to have that uh, sort of connection at that time to where an artist can just call you personally and say, hey, dude, do you want to go out on the road? You know, obviously, there are a lot of ways in which it's kind of like a a technical job, but it strikes me as something that insofar as, you know, they're willing to make themselves available to you, that it's really important to have a personal connection to actually be able to, I guess, figure out what, see see their vision into action. I mean, the, the thing is, you know, especially with musical directing, it's all about their vision. You know, how can I help you bring your vision to life? And, um how can I best lead this group of musicians to make that vision come to fruition? So um, it's always like that when I work with artists, like to me, it's all about how can I be the best conduit for what you think that this show should be or should say or should convey to an audience. Um, And very much so now working for myself. Now I am that person uh, in charge of that job. Is it a creative job? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yes, very much so. Uh, there is a certain amount of creativity. I think creativity exists in everything. I think there's art in everything, you know. So I'm the guy that looks at the, you know, the landscaper and says, wow, look at the art that he's doing. Or the guy who makes chairs or the guy that, you know, designs street lamps, you know. So um, 
or the stockbroker. You know, I look at there's art in everything. So, uh, yeah, definitely being a musical director is a creative job. Is it still a big part of your life or now that this solo thing is happening? Is it gone by the wayside? Actually, no, it's not a big part of my life now. Um, I do miss it at times. Uh, there's nothing like working with a band, with a group of musicians. Um, but uh, this new venture is very exciting uh, by itself is, you know, being a solo artist, being a pianist with no, you know, backing band and everything is, is a different uh, journey, but definitely not a boring journey. Very interesting. Obviously, there's a big difference in carrying out someone else's vision and carrying out your own. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a massive difference for me. You know, carrying out my vision uh, is just just a thing where I have to ask myself the questions that I would normally ask the artist. And to me, those questions of what are you saying? What is the arc of this show? What is the storyline? What are you trying to convey? How do you want people to feel when they leave? How do you want them to feel when they come in? I mean, like, it's a whole uh, a process that I'm used to doing with others that now I have to do for myself. The scale is obviously different, you know, between mm-hmm. between you and uh, and a Rihanna or a, a Justin yeah, Timberlake absolutely. right now. Like, I know mm-hmm. that, you know, when you were out here in the city, you played Joe's Pub, which is, you know, it's a very nice venue, but it's it's not it's not a huge one. But are there still are there still learnings that you can apply to a smaller show? Oh, absolutely. The same. I, I approach smaller shows with the same mentality, the same attitude, uh, the same energy. You know, whether it's Madison Square Garden or Joe's Pub, like it's this to me, it's the same. It has to have the same effect. And, you know, to reach the person in the back of the room, whoever's the last person in the very back of the room, I want them to be able to get the message just as much as the person that's in the front row. So uh, the the approach is very similar. Now, the scale is different, but the approach is the same. I have to assume that like a big part of your musical journey i know it sounds corny to say that but your musical life and and your career is this act of having to win people over because you know obviously there's a sense in which classical music is like a ubiquitous like almost commodity at this point but it's not something i mean especially younger generations really tend to engage with i think that this is a a beautiful time for classical music or new classical music because there are, there is this massive demographic of people who would love to be into this music. The thing that has, I think that's held us up is that it does not necessarily feel, or historically it has not felt like a emotionally, emotionally comfortable place. Especially for, I will say this, and I'll be honest with this, especially for people of color. So I've, I recently went to the symphony and there was like, me and one other black person. Oh, when you say place, and, you mean like physicality, yeah, just like com- physicality coming to the symphony. Like it has not been an emotionally safe place. So my job now is to create those spaces. And now that I'm cre- creating those spaces, we'd see like this massive influx. I mean, one of the things that I love is, is when I play a show and then some guy that looks like he's like me from the West side of Detroit, he's like, yo bro, that was crazy. Like that, Yo, that made me feel like I never felt before. I love those moments. And then right after that, there's, you know, 80 year old grandma from, you know, from 
New York that's like, you know what, that I've played classical music when I was young and I've always been a fan and I go to the symphony, but this was an amazing experience. So, uh, you know, just to see the difference in the demographic. And that's one thing I can say about myself and my shows is that, you know, the demographic is everybody. It's so, it's so, like, it's everyone. All in one hodgepodge kind of uh, getting an emotional experience. I think last week was talking to a, a, a jazz pianist, was having this conversation around um, almost like two schools of thought when it comes to jazz. And obviously they're not, obviously there's a lot of overlap and, you know, he's certainly somebody who does a little bit of both, but there's the, the traditionalist, there's the people, you know, we think of like the Wynton Marsalises of the world and playing at Lincoln Center and like, and trying to preserve this great heritage. And then there's the side of things that, you know, is like, Jazz is an experimental art form, and it should always be an experimental art form. It should always be pushing forward. And it seems like, you know, I, I do listen to a fair bit of 20th, 21st century classical, but it's classical music suffers that a lot more as far as this academic pedestal that it tends to get put on. And it's, it's hard for people to reach that. Yeah. I mean, the, the genre itself is kind of built, and I know... Uh, Classical people may look at me a little crazy for saying this, but it's built on composer worshiping. Like we're worshiping composers that have been dead for many, many, many years. Yes, they are the greats. Yes, they laid the foundation. Yes, they are absolutely incredible. But they were telling stories from their time. And I think it's important that we start to create and tell stories from our time. I just think that this new wave or this new generation of classical musicians is uh, we're not so much based in the the you know quote unquote education of it all. It's more about expressing yourself and expressing yourself honestly. Um, and I think that's a very strong uh, place for us to be, especially moving forward as composers and musicians, is to be able to express these things that are happening around us. I think that's very, very, very important. I talk about this a lot when I'm ta talking to um, people who perform classical music, but I'm one of those people who it took it took me a long time, a lot of banging my head to really actually for it to break through. And I was uh, was in Santa Cruz, which is which is where I went to school. I was speaking to a professor on the show, and he it does like computer programs, you know, like really early computer programmer uh, creating like Bach algorithms basically on the computer, like super interesting stuff. But I said, hey, you know, I've been spending much of my adult life attempting to to figure this thing out, and his suggestion was, he said, get get the two. Glenn Gould recordings of the Goldberg Variations, one performed when he was in his 20s and one performed toward the end of his life. And they're dramatically different. I don't know if you've ever done like the one-to-one, -one, but in his 20s, it's like, as you expect, it's, you know, he's super fast, super energetic, end of his life. Like, it, it, it's, it's somber. He's not even that old, but it was somber. The very obvious realization dawned on me how much of classical music is interpretation more than any other genre, because there's this remove. And in the case of somebody like Bach, there is no recorded Bach. People don't even know how fast those things were intended to be played. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, classical music is 99.9% .9 interpretation, especially if we're playing pieces that have, you know, were written so long ago and so many people have performed uh, these works. I think that, like I said, new works, the new stuff, the new interpretations. Um, I think where we are 
2023 going into 2024 yields that we have this different way of viewing and of playing and expressing uh, this music. Even, like you said, even if you look at one person in their lifetime and their interpretation, the differences in where you are in your life. So for me, being a young composer and musician, I think this is a prime time to be expressing myself in um, how I see the world and giving people kind of a glimpse into how the world looks through my eyes. So when you talk about um, telling stories in the modern context, you include interpretation in that as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it's, all, it's all inclusive. I mean, the story, what's a story if it's not told in a certain way? You know, so I think it's very important that the stories even have their own interpretation. And it's so funny because I've seen uh, other musicians playing my pieces and I love to hear other interpretations like, oh, I, I didn't think of that there. I didn't think of that in that, that way. So uh, each one of our, our personal tastes is uh, very important to express. I partially mean from the standpoint of you know, and, and there, there's always there's an abstraction to mu- to instrumental music. I'm I'm a writer is my job, so I'm used to words, right? And and there's something very tangible about lyrics, and it is a big abstraction to deal with questions or subjects through instrumental music. Something you're obviously very interested in, and is like you could tell by the song titles on both of your records. But but I'm wondering, you know, is there a way to tell, you know, like I just would use like George Floyd as an example because he tackled that on the last record, um, to tell that story through a piece of music that was written hundreds of years ago? I don't think so. I, I would say, you know, and my best guess I would say no, because you haven't experienced it. You know, how can you tell a story about something you've never experienced? Telling a modern story through an old piece of music by reinterpreting it. Yeah, telling a modern story through an old piece of music. I think the only way to tell a modern story is with a modern piece of music. So I think, you know, this is very much to to your point that this is the newer generation of, of what classical music. We need to write music for our time. You know, like Beethoven wrote music for Beethoven's time and Chopin wrote music for his times. But this is, you know, this is our our moment. So uh, I think for composers and pianists and musicians and instrumentalists, I think this is a whole new wave, a whole new generation of uh, music that's going to be coming out. That's going to be very interesting. In the George Floyd example or in the example of, you know, the Little Rock Nine, or we can we can start, we can talk in a bit about what that Kanye track is about. Yeah. I, I, oh, absolutely. <laughs> very much like to get get into that but what does it mean to deal with a very tangible real thing a thing that people have written and talked a lot about with a piece of instrumental music like how do you how do you process these ideas and these thoughts and these feelings through music the way i process it is to try and tell the best story i can without using words which means that this has to be a natural expression of the emotion that I'm feeling in this moment. Um, for instance, we're talking about the George Floyd piece. The beginning of the piece, I, it's so funny because that piece was written after, it was the last piece written for Black Book. And the event happened the day I finished, 
I had originally planned on having 10 songs. The 11th song was George Floyd, and it happened on the next day after I finished number 10. The day you thought you were finished with the record. The day I thought I was finished, I had to you know, run back and turn on the keyboard again and press record and just record how I felt. And as you'll hear at the beginning of that piece, I'm banging on the piano. It's literally anger and aggression getting out in its best form. I was mad, just like so many other people. And then you hear all these expressions of sorrow and this reflection of, uh, of our history. At the end of the piece, you know, it's the most important part, which is hope. There's this rising sort of feeling and, and hope. And at the very, very end of the piece, there's the motif of we shall overcome. So to answer that question is the emotions in their raw sense then become notes and harmonies and melodies. Um, and I think that's the truest part of classical music is being able to express yourself without saying words. When you say motif, you mean you're taking a piece of that song and integrating it into your song? Yeah, you see, you'll hear the melody, we shall overcome, right at the end. In a sense, that's an example of taking an older piece of music and applying it to the current moment. And, you know, I know that you're well-versed in, in hip-hop. Hip-hop's all about sampling, so there's a sense in which hip-hop is all about applying older pieces of music to newer thoughts. Yes and no. I mean, hip-hop is very much sample-based, but then there are pieces that aren't. They have no samples that are actually new melodies, new harmonies. So, I mean, it's kind of a toss-up. I think that we can take inspirations from from older pieces, but to say that it can directly, like to take a piece directly to speak about something that's happening right now, I don't think that's, I don't think that's really, they really apply in that way. What was it about George Floyd specifically? Obviously, like, in a lot of ways, not an isolated event. And, you know, people often forget that things were, Things were real shitty before the pandemic started. It's been a, it's been a rough, you know, several years. Um, why, why was that the one that made you really sit down and have instantly uh, channel into music? I, I mean, it was happening in real time. It was, I had no other choice. You know, my, my manager called me and he said, don't go outside. He said, go sit behind your piano and speak. People are waiting to hear your voice on this subject, so speak. And that's pretty much the basis of like all of my compositions are let me just speak when it feels you know, let me be as vulnerable and open as possible. Even when I'm on stage, like my whole objective when I go on stage is how how much can I open my chest and let people see what's inside? How can they see my love and my pain and my vulnerabilities? And my sorrows and my happiness and my joy, how can they see all of those emotions? So that carries me from writing and carries, you know, on the stage is how can I show as much of myself as possible? And what role do the, does the poetry or do the spoken word pieces play in that? Because they exist on both records. Yeah. So on the first record was uh, my good friend, Lauren Della Pena. We had this conversation, and the whole conversation was, how do we create a twin sister for Black Book? So the Black Book album had already been written. We just needed to kind of, you know, create this 
this version of Black Book that was actually in words. And she's such a wonderful wordsmith. And we've had so many interesting conversations and uh, just hours and hours of talking and exchanging ideas. And then she would kind of go away for a week and come back with this poem. And it would just be spot on. It would be exactly what we intended. As well, she, she took creative chances like I took creative chances. Um, one of the pieces that really stands out is The King's New Drip. For me, The King's New Drip means this is the piece that I wrote that was all new things that were foreign to my hands, foreign to my imagination, just all new. So she went and did a contrapuntal, which is, you know, essentially The King's New Drip poem is three poems that can be read either separately or as one. So she took, you know, creative risk that she had never taken the same way I had took creative risk and in the same places and the same pieces and same points. It's very important, the the whole spoken word side of it. And then for, for Dr. Thomas, I mean, she's been my therapist and life coach for so many years now. My question to her was, if you could speak to everyone and give them a piece of what you've given me throughout the years, what would you say? So those became the four uh, spoken word pieces on the new album Nine, which are just, I mean, these really, really, really raw nuggets of knowledge that she shared that she has shared with me throughout our time, and uh, just decided to you know put it on, record them, and I played something that just uh, complimented everything that she said and. It worked out pretty well. You know, I was looking her up, and I think I found the right person. I mean, she's she also is or was a professor at U of M. Is that right? Mm, different Felicia, so. maybe different Felicia yeah. Thomas. Okay, yeah, maybe different Felicia Thomas. Yeah, there, there are a lot of Felicia uh, Thomases in the world, and that was the one where I was like, yeah, "This could be, you know, this yeah. this makes sense." Um, and I guess the reason why I couldn't find her is because you know she's a therapist, so she's not really out there in the same way. Right. Yeah, obviously, very unusual to collaborate with your therapist was yeah. that i don't know was that a was that was that a strange was it ever uncomfortable not ever not once it was magic from the moment i asked to the moment she said yes to the moment we had a conversations and even for the moment i turned him into her and said this is what we got it was it was a magical collaboration it was just the same as working with lauren to me the message was so important and it was the glue that tied the album together to me to have these really strong messages like about awareness you know uh, a a new reality for all of us is when you become come into a state of awareness your life can change you can affect your life in, in different ways she always says you create your reality with your words and now that i'm so very aware of the things that i say my reality has changed there are certain words that I don't use anymore. I've con- totally taken them out of my vocabulary and other words that I use very, very often. So when I was able to shift the things that I say, I was able to shift the way that I appeared and the way that I presented myself in the world and just myself, like my awareness. I know, you know, those moments of, of feeling and deep feeling and being able to take that awareness and put it into compositions. So this is kind of like a thing that affects not only the music, but affects my life as well. Is she your first therapist? No, not my first. 
but definitely the best one. Yeah, yeah. well, obviously, yeah. the only one to appear on one of your records. <laughs> yeah, she's amazing, yeah. When did you start seeing somebody? Probably the end of 2019. Yeah, yeah. Went through a bad breakup in 2019 and uh, needed some answers. And uh, that led to the creation of Black Box. So when Black Box was being created, this new, you know, this new knowledge that I uh, had been given through therapy kind of, you know, they kind of acted at the same time. And, and for me, I had never composed classical music before 2020. So this was like a brand new, this was all brand new uncharted territory I was in. Uh, but I think I did pretty good. I had a lot of mostly subconscious aversions to it, but the, they're just the things that you kind of, you live with, right? And you kind of take it for granted. Was it, was it hard for you to make that step? Um, not at all. I knew that I needed answers and I knew I couldn't figure it out on my own. So now when I'm even doing my concerts and I talk about Dr. Thomas, I say to all the, the specifically to black men, like, dude, this world is complex. Why not get a second opinion? Why not get another mind that can help you navigate these, these crazy turbulent waters? And I think that's what therapy really is. It's just being able to have someone else to give you just a slight shift in perspective and it can change the way you view the whole world and it can, you know, for your to make your life better. So why not make your life better? Go ahead and get therapy. It's easy. And then there's people like Dr. Thomas who who offer therapy for uh, underserved communities. And like there are people out there who are really fighting for uh, the people who really need the help the most. You said that when you took that first step or, or I guess when you started seeing somebody it was around the time that black box was created and it's interesting to hear that because like you you refer to yourself by that name so what what is it what does it mean that that it was created oh i had never is i had never done this before i had never written classical music or anything flavored like classical music before i mean my history is as you know is touring with pop artists um I played classical music and studied when I was a very young child, from about age four to about 16. But I had never tried anything like this. I was enrolled in a program called the Creators Workshop, which was hosted by Seth Godin. And um, it was a 100-day commitment to do whatever you do creatively with accountability. So after you do it, you have to upload it to the website so people can see it. Um, and for the first time, and, and I, I know for you as a writer, uh, it's it, and for me as a as a music as a songwriter, you know we don't write in public, but this was writing in public. Every day, people will be able to hear the music, whatever it is, if it's fifteen seconds or four minutes or whatever it was that I posted for that day, people will be able to hear it, comment on it, give me real time feedback. So. Black Bach was created in the process of this 100 days. Well, actually, it ended up being 121 consecutive days. I had never written music like this. I had never tried this before. Uh, I had never written in public before. And at the end of it, I had this album called Black Book. And I had learned this great skill. One, how to be accountable to an audience. And two, how to write in public. So even now, I have a secret Patreon where there's not a lot of people there, but 
I continue when I write pieces to say, hey, guys, this is day one. Hey, guys, this is what I got on day two. Hey, guys, day three was trash. I got, you know, so your poop emojis, 20 of them, you know. So it's just this uh, great creation uh, that happened in 2020 during the lockdown was the creation of Black Box. Obviously, it prepared you for lockdown and it prepared you for having a presence on like Instagram um, and, and, and being very social. But that was you did that throughout the writing of both records. You, you did them in public. Yep. Both records were written in public. You mentioned accountability. That's a big part of it. You know, in the same way that like deadlines are important, right? And and you know, much like therapy, like that. It's that nu- that extra nudge you need. But I, I also understand the impulse or the desire to just you know kind of step away with your thing for a while and come back with this new product you're serving up to people. Um, what wh- what are the other benefits or what are the other effects to to composing in that way. Oh, I think one of the benefits is that people are able to be with you on the journey. Traveling, you know, it's traveling with a group of people. And I think that that's always better than traveling alone. It definitely has become a superpower for me being able to to bring people along, especially for the creative process. We're so used to, you know, writing in the, the dark shed of the, in the deep, deep dark of night and doing our work and then presenting it when it's all kind of done and polished and read 300 times and you know, proofread and everything like that. This is just a different way of composing for me. I, I've never done it in this way, but I, I really, really... It, it gives me, uh, like I usually do consecutive days. And that really, really is one of the things that's been a benefit to me, especially learning that, um, and this is very controversial, <laughs> it was controversial for me when I heard it, is that writer's block is a myth. And uh, Seth Godin, <laughs> yeah, exactly, your expression. You know, I'm a, I'm a writer, my entire professional career has been writing. I love writing, I still like writing every day. But I talk to a lot of readers, or a lot of writers who hate writing, and it baffles me that it's a painful process for them. Yeah, it's it's not a painful process for me. I don't know what that is. I've never. There are other things that you could do that would make you a lot more money than doing this. Why do you keep doing this thing if you hate yeah, it so much? Yeah, it's yeah, strange. Yeah, but you know, it's like writer's block. You know, uh, one of the things I learned was that writer's block is simply the. Uh, the feeling that you may create something insignificant. So the idea is that writers write. So for me, consecutive days work for me. If I'm writing a piece, I want to be consecutive, you know, get it done in, you know, nine or 10 days or or seven days or 20 days, however long it takes. But the same thing is posting to the public and letting them know, you know, actually uh, what's happening as this piece progresses, as it grows. I know a lot of artists generally, certainly a lot of musicians I talk to have a very love-hate relationship with social media. A lot of them feel obligated to do it. And a lot of them are worried about the influence that that kind of real-time feedback gives them in that I've got this, you know, specific artistic vision and am I 
just doing this to you know to cater to people am i just giving the people what they want is there is there a little bit of that push and pull with your process um i wouldn't i think the push and pull with the with the writing and creative stuff it does i don't have that but social media to me is something completely separate from what i do as far as writing and being a composer i think social media is a is a whole other it's another genre honestly uh being able to to serve the social audience in that way is different than being able, you know, than writing new compositions. Um, I don't feel like the push and pull happens on the creative side, on the com- composer side. On the social media side, it's just, I think the push and pull happens with, you know, what will be something that resonates with people. You know, so it, it's, you know, you always ask that question, what do you think will resonate with, with this audience? And then I, I usually in the end, I'd end up doing whatever I feel anyway. So I'm kind of like a vigilante in that way. Like, and if it resonates with you, great. If it doesn't, that's fine too. You know, um, I, I don't expect to get, you know, 400 million <laughs> likes on a particular post. It's, it's never a goal. You know, for me, it's not that desi- I'm not thinking about those goals. Like how many likes am I going to get or how many follows am, am I going to get? It's more about, let me just put out something that I think is fun. And I think that, um, people, will relate to on the compositional side it's not about soliciting real-time feedback from people yeah no not really no it's it's more about just expressing it myself and uh you know letting people kind of see uh the the journey as it unfolds were your parents musical or are your parents musical uh my mother's side of the family is very musical so i have uh my grandfather's name is honeymoon garner he has a it's a great name Yes, yeah, such a great name. Um, he has a note on the Walk of Fame in uh, Memphis, on the Memphis Bill Street Walk of Fame. I have another uncle who was a tap dancer with Gregory Hines and uh, Sammy Davis Jr., another uncle who was a saxophonist with the Count Basie Band. Uh, my mother was a flautist. Every, my sister is a pianist as well, so uh, all the music comes from my mom's side. My dad's side were very organized. He's a computer person, so that comes in handy as well. Flautists keep popping up on my radar recently. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the Lizzo effect or something, but it just seems it's, to be like in the air again. Yeah, it's the Lizzo uh, Andre 3000 effect. You know, that was an interesting one for me. I, you know, I mm-hmm. love the outcast like every other human being on Earth, but um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. That's I, we don't we need to go too far down this because it's not super yeah. relevant to this conversation, but I'm curious to get your take on it because it like, to me, it felt like somebody, obviously he's, you know, kind of trying this stuff out and he's not you know he's not an expert who's been you know playing classical music his entire life and it seemed like a lot of the heavy lifting was done in the production Uh, i just think this is a great way to express yourself in another way i think you know we all have it you know we're not going to stay the same and i i believe that this is a new iteration of who he is and either again you can love it or you can not love it, and it's fine. If you love it, then this is for you. If it's not for you, then, you know, go listen to Outkast albums, which are still available, you know. It's, you know, people talk about, like, live, live in your best life, like that that whole thing. You got one guy playing the flute, the other guy's raising owls. Like, <laughs> what, what if just a bunch of magical creatures they both yeah, became after? Exactly, that? yeah. I, I love that, though, to see just, like, you know, how people evolve. I love that. On a related note, um, it, it sounds like classical music was something that you 
were invested in from a re- from a very early age, and then you kind of moved away from them for a while. Yeah, very true. Uh, I say around age sixteen or so, I was just like, you know, um, let me see what jazz is all about. So I started studying jazz with some of the, I mean, legends in Detroit, some of the jazz masters, um, like the Marcus Belgraves and Teddy Harris's and uh, Harold McKinney's and these, I mean, these absolute jazz monsters. Um, and I, I just really went down that rabbit hole for a very long time. And, uh, you know, it just was something that it just was kind of this natural thing. I, I then started playing with blues bands and then I started making beats and producing. So I've kind of been this, this fish that's kind of flowed through every part of the ocean. And like, um, in LA, I played with a rock and roll band, you know, I went on tour with all these people. Um, so it's just been a little bit of everything. And what I think now the music that I create is the result of all of these experiences. A lot of times I look at the classical forms and I look at, you know, the forms in my pieces and I'm like, oh, this is exactly like this pop song. You know, it's like a verse, a pre-chorus, chorus, chorus, you know, like it's pop form, but with this different take on, I guess, what we would call quote unquote classical music. So, and I I hear every once in a while, I'll play something that's really jazzy and I'll be like, oh, there it is. (laughs) You know, like I'll, I'll hear myself kind of trigger something or something bluesy or something that it relates to hip hop. So uh, it's just this music is kind of like the, you know, with the departure at a, at a young age and then the return at this age, I returned with a lot more stuff, with a lot more like information from other places. So uh, I think that definitely helps in the creation of what I'm doing now. That's very foundational, especially in the case of blues. You know, you're learning this like, what's the word for it? Like this foundation that you built a house on top of, right? Like with blues, it's like 12 bar blues. And then, you know, every blues song and every rock and roll song that came after was built on it. So it sounds like part of the process is really learning these foundational things and then determining what to build on top of them. Very much so. Like, and that's been my experience is, you know, classical foundations, jazz foundations, blues foundations, rap foundations, uh, pop music and foundations, pop performance in its foundations, you know, like all these things that go into uh, making these specific genres great. And uh, now it's just kind of like a whole gumbo of all that stuff now. Four to, I think you said 16. It sounds like eight was really kind of when he really started to hit your stride, which is the same pianist that I was talking to last week, like started at a very young age. And I talked to, I t- I talk to a lot of like rock bands and I'll be like, yeah, isn't it strange that you've been doing the same thing that, you know, you were doing since you were 19. Like most people can't say that, but like, you're essentially doing the same thing that you've been doing since you were four years old. It's wild. Yeah, it's absolutely wild. I think about that too. Like, you know, I've had other little jobs, but I've never not done music. You know, it's been with me. It's been, you know, my companion in life right now. So, you know, and it's the best companion. It's so cool. (laughs) So you were doing like recitals or what were you doing around those ages? Yeah, I was doing recitals and competitions and getting scholarships and, you know, you name what it takes, you know, as a young classical musician, all of, all of, all of the above, uh, E, all of the above. So uh, it was pretty exciting. You know, as a kid, I didn't realize what it was actually happening. Because it's just life. Yeah. Yeah. It's you don't just know anything life. else. You know, you're a kid and, you know, you have your piano lesson on Saturday and you practice throughout the week and, 
you know, you have a competition that comes on in a couple months and you pick your pieces and you start working on them and it is what it is. You know, so for that period of time, I never realized exactly what was going on around me. It's just kind of going through the motions. Did you catch shit from other kids? Oh, of course. I mean, I grew up on the west side of Detroit. Like, oh, my God. That, so the piano room in my house was in the very back. It was the very back room that was facing the alley. So the kids would come up the alley and they would knock on my window and be like, yo, you coming outside? I'm like, nah, I got to practice, dude. Go, oh, man, you suck. You know, whatever. And they would go play basketball or do whatever. So mm. it was uh, one of those things where, yeah, in school I did, you know, it's not it's not popular. <laughs> you know, I'm a, I'm a black kid going to a black school playing classical music. Yeah, if you were inside learning to DJ or, or or to like MC or something, like that would be a different story. It's you're playing this old stodgy like white person music. Yeah, exactly. And I, I give a lot of a lot of respect and a lot of props to my high uh, my middle school band director, um, who's now like a uh, family member to me, Miss Knox, who would have me play these pieces for the class. So very early on, the stage fright thing had to go away because I was forced by my middle school band director to play and perform in front of these terrible, terrifying You're never going to get a worse kids. audience than... Yeah, exactly. You're never going to get a worse audience than middle school kids. And you're playing classical music. So very early on, I learned like, okay, I just have to go and do what I do. And then, you know, whatever. However they receive it is how they receive it. I mean, there must have been some respect coming your way, in, in, just in the sense that you've mastered, you know, people don't master things at that early of an age. Like, the kids must have been impressed, at least. Yeah, there were some that were impressed. There were, you know, others that weren't, you know, could give less, <laughs> you know. But um, it was definitely, like I said, eye-opening to see the amount of people that were impressed. You know, because I didn't think anyone would be, you know, I'm like, oh, these kids are going to they're going to put me through the grinder. And uh, there were some that were very, you know, became, I became friends with some because of that. And then some of them were like the worst of the worst kids, too. Like some of the worst kids would be like, man, you you really good. We got to make sure we look out for you, you know. And that was one thing I will say um, is that I grew up the hood kind of protected me. They knew that I had a potential for something great. And it kind of like. Like, my friends in middle school wouldn't let me get in trouble with them. They would be like, nah, you go over there. <laughs> you know, we're going to go do this. So um, I definitely, there was a respect that was gained from some people, and I, I really, really appreciate that. What is it specifically that brought you back to classical music? I had never, okay, so my, he was my publisher at the time. His, his name is Billy Mann. Billy Mann suggested at the end of 2019 that I write a solo piano album. And I literally tell him on the phone, I said, I have no idea what that means. So I had never thought about doing a solo piano album. I mean, I you've never... listened to a lot of solo piano albums, jazz and classical. and Yeah, but never, you know, never saw myself doing it. I had been touring with, you know, John Mayer and Rihanna. And then I was playing, you know, making hip hop beats on the side. So it was, it was never this thing where I was alone. So he pitched the idea to me. And then uh, I started working. I, I, you know, decided, okay, I don't know what my voice is. I have never discovered my voice. Like, what does, you know, my, my government name, what does Charles Wilson sound like? And my first album, Black Book, was the discovery of that sound. 
So he suggests soul piano, and it could have been jazz, it could have been classical. Could have been anything. And just the pro- through the process of composing and playing, this is where you landed. This is where I landed, exactly. We, you know, we're talking about Big Boy and, uh, and Andre 3000, but there are other hip-hop careers that have uh, not turned out as well for <laughs> in terms of... Um, I don't know, uh, uh, emotional state and, uh, stability. Um, you, it's, it's, it, it's funny and funny is not the right word, but you know, again, reading back in the interviews, you were talking about Rihanna in one of them and you both mentioned, or you mentioned that you were listening to 808 heartbreaks at the time and like what a next level genius Kanye is, obviously. What's your relationship to his music now? Uh, now, I have no relation to his music, no relationship to his music. Um, and that's because of, I mean, the obvious reasons, the downward progression of, of some of his views and opinions. Um, Talking and up some Hitler, of that, for example. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, you know, who I am and where I am and where I'm going can't support those type of things. So, um it's just, you know, that was a moment in time and I love that, those moments. Like, I listen back to, like, um, I think about, I don't listen to it anymore, but I think about those times listening to 808s and Heartbreaks or um, any of his albums and just, like, you know, it, it, it makes me sad, but it's, um, I have to be who I am now and who I am now doesn't support um, exactly the artist or the human that he's become or becoming. It's a funny thing because... Like for me, not listening to his last couple records hasn't been difficult because I'm just not super interested. But I'm a big Ty Dollar Sign fan. There's that record's coming out, and that's going to be a hard one to not listen to. Uh, I don't know. Like you know, it's I just can't support it. Uh, you know, the 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 humanitarian me says, "Oh my God, this this doesn't feel right." You know, and and I think that's the most important thing is to honor myself and how I feel about a certain situation and uh, all, a particular artist. And, you know, it's no diss to him. And I hope that, you know, this all in the wash, I hope that this makes him a better person, honestly. It'd be great. Um, be that would be great, you know, and, you know, this kind of Phoenix Rising situation. I would love that. From where I sit, and this is unfair, but from where I sit, he seems like somebody who's off his meds and that's causing a lot of havoc in his life. I mean, to me, from where I sit... The, the, yes, you're off your meds, but you need to address the real problem. Like people, meds are just there to, to kind of, you know, help. But as well as you're getting the help, you have to address the root. And I feel like there's no, no, there's no attention being paid to any of the roots. And in his case, there's no, no roots, no trees, no limbs, no leaves, no nothing is being paid attention to. He's just kind of off and blowing in the wind. Um, so... You know, like I said, I hope that this is uh, like this happy story. This story has a happy ending because, uh, you know, I was a fan. I definitely was a fan. And, you know, the piece on my album, uh, The Dissolution of Kanye West, speaks to that. It's a dirge, which is basically my expression of how sad I am that I can no longer be a fan. So, um, you know, people ask me all the time, like, oh, is that controversial? I'm like, no, it's not a controversial piece. It's simply an expression of how I feel, um, having been a fan and knowing that now I can't support continuing forward. I think there are a lot of parallels to be drawn between him and Elon Musk right now, where if 
if enough people in your life tell you you're a genius, you start to believe it, and and that can be a problem. Yeah. I just, for both of them, I just, you know, more than anything, I hope they get better. I hope that, you know, uh, help. I hope they get the help that they need. I hope they get talk to, get them a Dr. Thomas. Get them a Dr. Thomas. Yeah, she's up for it. She's up for it. Exactly. She probably doesn't she's have a lot totally of free time, but... She can definitely uh, fix them up, no problem. <laughs> 